Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, May 23rd. We are here live. It's time for an episode of The Power Hour. We'll be taking all of your maintenance-related calls, so line them up. We're going to open the phone lines right now. Jump in and join us, 855-950-3835. Looks like we're uh, lining up the team from Pittsburgh Power right now. We will hear from them, and then we will get to your calls and questions. So go ahead and jump in early. Phone lines normally get busy, 855 855- Nine five zero three eight three five. Looks like uh, we've got Eric and Leroy in the house. Leroy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Oh, hold on a second. Um, let me try. I just realized I don't have my headset on, and my volume is really low. Start talking so I can fix this. We are talking. Right. Is this like a test thing, or do we actually? Are we on the air? Are we live? <laughs> Keep going. Okay, we're we are continuing to go. We're gonna talk about truck things. Big truck things. Big truck things. Yeah, because little trucks um really have a newfound hatred for this one I just bought. It's gonna bankrupt me. <laughs> What's that? My power stroke. Oh well my transmission decided to leave the chat. On really? the test drive from getting the fuel off fixed, yes. Yeah, wonderful day. Wow. Yeah, good good times. Love it. I should have stuck with the EcoBoost. <laughs> All right. I, I think I might have well, it good. figured out. I uh, I took some of my equipment out of here yesterday to play around with the new video series I'm trying to work on, and then I totally forgot to put it back here. So uh, I'm working at a handicap today. I'm probably working at a handicap most days, but that's a different story. Uh, I think I got it figured out. I can hear everybody somewhat. I mean, you're here, so. What's that? Yeah, Lee. Leroy's working with a handicap today, me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we're all handicapped today. We'll figure it out. Uh, Leroy, what's on your mind this week? All right. Well, I wanted to answer another question from a user on Trucking Tribe about um, the difference between the X-15 and the regular ISX when they transition in... 2018, 2017, from the ISX to the X15. There were, yeah, the user was Scott, and I'm I'm not going to really attempt to pronounce the last name. Burke, I'm just going to go with. Anyway, so the difference between the ISX15 and the X15 is, well, there's a, a bunch of things. So we'll just start at the top. So one of the things that the big things that they did was they changed the after treatment system from sort of three components to one singular component, they called it like a single module after treatment system. Yeah, didn't they call it a modular design or like a unitized? Didn't they have a... I think it's called single module. Okay. Even though it's not like a one box, instead of there being like pipe in between like the DPF and the decomp tube, they just sort of shoved it all together. That's where I get a lot of people calling me and saying, hey, is this a one box now? No, it's still separate components. But it is a different name, but it's not, I don't want to say it's misleading, but it's definitely different, yeah. but it's still the same concept. Because you used to have the DPF and the DOC all right t- together, and then there would be a stretch of pipe from the back of the DPF to the decomp tube. Then you go through the decomp tube, but there would be another stretch of pipe to the SCR. They got rid of all the stretch of pipe in between. Um, I would think to keep the SCR face temp warmer 
which will, would reduce like crystallization of the DEF, which would mean that the DEF system would work a little bit better. And then it would also keep the exhaust flowing faster because exhaust gases by nature, when they're hotter, they move faster. So I think they wanted to evacuate them a little bit too. Yeah. Just to keep it maybe a little bit cleaner and hotter. Maybe. Not sure. Um, the other big thing that they did was they got rid of the seventh injector, the fuel doser, hydrocarbon doser, whatever you want to call it. They got rid of that and in place put in post-injection. So well, what a post-injection is, is a, a fairly large quantity of fuel fired after the main injection cycle where all the power happens. So imagine the piston comes up, you get your main uh, bunch of fuel, the power stroke happens, and then maybe halfway to 80% after the pistons, after top dead center, it sprays another big group of fuel really late, right? Or really retarded, however you want to say it. And that fuel doesn't really combust very well, but it just makes a bunch of heat, right? So they use that instead of a seventh injector to make exhaust heat for the, um, the, the DOC phase. Right. That's, that's in the cylinder they're doing that. Wouldn't that create a lot of soot? Um, I, I don't think so. If you no. put it in the right place, it really doesn't. Um, okay. it, but it, it is more sooty than, you know, just without it. But I think the, the thing was they're trying to get rid of the hydrocarbon doser and all the issues that they had with that. So that's just the system that they went to. A lot of the smaller engines like the six, seven and stuff like that, they never had a seventh injector. They always just did post injections. Okay. I noticed on the oil samples, too, that I'm reading, I don't see any difference in the soot level between an X15 and ISX, assuming the customer filled out their sample card, right? But look at a lot of those, and I've been trying to look at the comparisons on those, and they're very clean engines from what I've been seeing, too. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of manufacturers use this. Um, if you don't have a seventh injector, you need some sort of way to build heat, um, you know, or shoot basically raw fuel or a lot of heat. And the only way to do that without a seventh injector is post-injections. Yeah. So it's not just Cummins that does this. It's other manufacturers. I don't know any of them off the top of my head, but I would assume if you don't have a hydrocarbon doser, then they're using post-injections. So that might be the new Volvos. That might be the, the 15s, the 13s. I can't remember which ones have seventh injectors and which ones don't. Got it. That's one thing that they used. Another big thing was all of them have the intake throttles. On an ISX-15 from 2013 to 2016, only the economy versions had the intake throttle, but now the X-15, they all have throttle blades. DD engines have had a throttle blade since, I think, 2008, something like that. But now all X-15s have the throttle blade. Another thing that's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, Eric, is they used to supply the air compressor with boost, you know, that's how where they would get their air supply from. Mm -hmm. But on a X15 turbo, they have a little nozzle on the face, on the intake of the compressor side. So it's a naturally aspirated air compressor. It doesn't so, get boost. So interesting, if we go back to when we were building gliders and, and working with those earlier emission engines before we got to EGR and some of those things, that group of engines that we really like, the Series 60, the the CATs, uh, the N14s, we started playing around with taking that supply line off and putting a filter on instead and making it, you know, it, it was just sucking its own air just so we wouldn't lose the boost. You know, we were just trying to, to right. optimize everything for fuel economy and performance. So we were actually creating that back then. Yes, I mean, you were ahead of the time. 
And now, I mean, the whole turbo itself is different. Uh, besides that whole naturally aspirated piece on the turbo, it also has a different mid center section for a different actuator. The actuator is totally different. The plug for it's different, um, different software. It's really a smaller turbo than even the year before, and they're already pretty small, and they continue to get smaller. <laughs> That's another thing you can just look at the side of the engine, and without even looking at a serial number, you know that's an X15. And that was one of the first things I noticed when when the when this first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, even with the common rail, you pop the hood, and holy cow, that thing's tiny. Yeah. And compared to like the old signature 600s and the EGR ISXs and stuff, or you know, we get an old cat in here or something. Holy crap, those things are huge. All right. To the yeah. <laughs> you can fit two of them inside of a 80 millimeter <laughs> cat. Um, there were some small changes with like the EGR system, like the Venturi piece used to be on a ISX, used to be sort of a straight through piece. And then they had some little ports off of it. If you look at the X15 one, it's actually more of a Venturi, sort of like the old style. If you looked at like a ISX CM870, like a 2003 to 2006, something like that, or 2007. Yeah. Um, you would see that little Venturi piece, the piece in the intake that would neck down real small and then get back up. In right. The hourglass. Right. They put that in back into the EGR system on the new ones. They went away from it and then they came back to it. Sort of interesting. So it must have really worked all along. Um, different EGR cooler, but you know, when they say improved EGR cooler, what does that mean? That they, <laughs> they put a bolt in a better place or it's made of a different material. You know, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get excited about a lot of this stuff on this list. A lot of the stuff I'm talking about, I'm not even going over everything because it's like, you know, updated, uh, high pressure fuel pump, fuel rail, like how did you update the fuel rail? You know what I mean? Exactly. I, yeah. New and improved, right? Right. So a lot of this stuff I'm just sort of skipping over, but uh, I'm just trying to touch on some of the big parts. Um, they do have a different oil pump than an ISX, which is interesting. And here's a bit of a side note. If you, look, if you were to order a block assembly for an X15 between the small CPL 4342 and the big CPL 4343, the efficiency series versus the productivity series. You would think the block assembly would be the same, but they're different blocks. Are they really? Like the block itself, I think. I think the block itself is the same, but the block assembly oh, is different. Okay. I don't know if it has huh. a different crank. I heard rumors online that it's a different crankshaft. I heard that it might have a different liner. I'm not sure. That's sort of interesting. Well, then the other thing, uh, this is another side topic we're getting off track, but there was a user that posted on this thing, on this thread called, his name was Frank, and he was complaining about that noisy gear train. Mm. And if, do you remember this, Eric? Yeah. I guess there was one years ago here that had a really noisy front gear train. We had a, a car hauler here from the West Coast. Uh, I think the truck had less than 4,000 miles. I mean, it was brand new. When he would get into acceleration, it was enough to rattle the fillings out of your teeth. Wow. Adam went for a ride with him and came back and he said, this guy's not lying. I mean, he's not exaggerating all it's bad. We got Cummins rep here, and through process of elimination, we figured out it was the scissor gear versus non-scissor gear. And that's when we found out that on the economy series, they did not run the scissor gear and the performance. I, I may get that. I yeah, it's, it's back one of the two. One of them had it, one of them didn't. And the upgrade was to put the scissor gear in. And on the other one that didn't have it, what they did was they set the gear lash at zero from the factory, but they used an anti-friction coating on the gears themselves. And they figured after that they would wear in and they would wear some of the coating down, 
it, the gear last should be set for a couple thousands, whatever was spec, but they didn't. And they had some noisy on noise from them, but they didn't have vibration. That was from the anti-friction coating on some of the gears as well. Yeah, because one of the th things that Cummins put out, they were saying one of the improvements that they made with the X-15 was the scissor gear removal. <laughs> yes. And it made me think of the story. I wasn't here for this, so I don't quite remember. But it sounds like the scissor gear was the, the actual the way to go. It was. That's why the one had it and the other one didn't. And when you put the scissor gear in, you corrected the problem. Because, I mean, a scissor gear is basically two gears that are sort of connected and they have springs to sort of keep tension for the reduced backlash. Correct. Because otherwise you have gears that sort of don't fit together tight and they sort of chatter in between. Well, if you have a, like a spring-loaded gear, you always keep tension on it. Correct. Does that sound about right? Okay. So it was interesting when I was reading their, quote, improvements that they got rid of this. For just a standard idler gear, I guess you're saying they had some sort of fancy coating on it. Well, that's where some of the noise came from, yes. Yeah, so I don't know if that's an improvement or if people are out there that are still having this, this noise. I would look into the gear train, specifically with the scissor gear versus idler gear. Um, like you're saying, I don't remember which way is which. It seems like to me that the scissor gear would be the quieter version than the non, but then versus the idler gear. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember. I'd have to go back talk to Brian and try to figure out which one it was. If I remember right, some of the issues were from, I think it's the fuel pump not being correctly timed. Yes, they also had that issue too. Yeah, it's it's the procedure has to be followed correctly. <laughs> Strange. Oh, imagine that. that the, fuel pump, yeah, <laughs> the fuel pump has to be timed not in relation to the camshaft position, but to the, not or to the crankshaft position it has to be timed to the camshaft position. It's something like that, but if you read the procedure and you do it right, I think it eliminates that helicopter freight train noise. Exactly. Anyway, we'll get back on track here. Okay. So some of the other things that they did, the head is different. And the head is actually, the head assembly, again, here we go with the assembly word, is different between the efficiency series and the productivity series. And the only thing different is the productivity series has better exhaust valves. So, Quality or size? So can, can I jump in here? Because here's, here's what I'm getting yeah, out of this. Why do they continue to make this whole thing more complicated than it needs to be? That's one of my problems with the ISX from the very beginning. And it just seems like they continue. Different block assemblies, different head assemblies. It just seems overly complicated, especially in a world where we have supply chain issues. I will agree in a way because if you, if you buy a 2020 Freightliner Cascadia with a DD-15, I mean, the DD-15 is the DD-15. It doesn't matter if you get a 455 or the 505. It's right. the same thing. And and they they're, it's pretty versatile. It can be tuned a lot of different ways. We could, you know, crank it up for heavy haul if we wanted. We could, you know, make it really, really super efficient. You have lots of options without changing hardware. And it, it just seems like we, uh, again, I, the ISX seems complicated all around. The architecture, the software, everything, and now we have multiple builds and parts, and it just doesn't seem like a good idea to me. What I would be interested in is if you got a, if you could get a DD fifteen in a six hundred five, I wonder if they would change it because if you look at just the DD fifteen, it comes from like four fifty five to like five hundred five. I mean, the CPL coverage for Cummins is also like four fifty to five and a quarter. I mean, that's all one CPL. So if you look at it from that perspective, it is the same. They come and changes their CPLs around or if they need to add a better oil cooler, if they need to add a different turbo, 
they're also building 565 and 605 horsepower engines versus the Detroit's aren't. You, you know what That's it correct. And, reminds me of, and we're not rebuilding engines the way we used to, but this became a problem with the Series 60. All the different builds, when people would rebuild them, you'd get a Johnny Cash version of the engine. And it yeah. created problems. I mean, th- those were the engines where I, I remember several cases. Somebody would call me. I've got a glider. I've got a rebuilt Series 60. My fuel economy is awful. And I'd say, we can fix that. We've done it a thousand times. Except we'd work with them and work with them and work with them. And we'd never fix it. I had three or four cases that were just making me crazy. And it turned out it was just a hodgepodge of parts. And there was just nothing you could do to get that engine right. Now, yeah, exactly. You know what's even worse nowadays is cats. I think cats are almost worse now than 60 series were used really? years ago when they were all like, yeah, you get a, people in here with a cat. Well, it's a, it's a two WS block with an MBN crank <laughs> and eight injectors with a C15 cam. And then you're like, I don't know what this thing is, yeah. you know? And then they have a C17 kit. Like cats are, I actually think cats are now worse than 60 yeah. series worse. Well, they read it on, yeah. the you know, some guy with a C18 cam and a C15, he made 13,000 horsepower. <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're worse. I, I want there, there were some builds on the Series 60 that we had kind of created and thought they were better. The 3 and 4, we were mixing parts for a while, which might be fine if you kind of have a system and you figured out, hey, if we do this, it works better, until somebody needs a part and then they can't figure out what happened. So if you're going to do this, the the uh, trick would be maybe you should document it better. Right. I want to jump into on this a little bit, but. The, the complexity isn't just Cummins. Uh, I'm going to kind of stand up for the big brother, little brother thing here. It, it's everywhere. Every manufacturer out there copies everybody else. You know, I can I can take it down to automotive level if you want to talk like the LS engine, the cross. No, we don't thing. want to. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. In, in all theory, the first four-bolt cross main was back in 1928 when Maybach made the, the V12. That was the very first one. And everybody said, oh, well, Ford got copied by, or I'm sorry, LS copied Ford having the cross bolt main. No, that went back years ago. And that's been the evolution of all engines. Everybody buys a competitor's engine and they tear it down. Who has four, who, who has four valve in per cylinders? Almost, you know, Volvo has it, Cummins has, it, a lot of people have it. The, the connecting rod. I was looking at your post a little bit ago, Kevin, on the Volvo rods. Short rod to me would be higher RPM and less torque, which is kind of odd uh, that they would opposite. use it, but I could see it opposite. They're, Wouldn't they're it have using knowledge? the sh- this is this, in my opinion, and I'm completely convinced about this now. I've been through the Volvo training on this. This is the main difference of why Volvo is my choice between their engine architecture that gives us this really wide operating ratio from 900 RPM, we can cruise at those speeds comfortably and efficiently, and we can go up to 12, 13. We can can spec a Volvo with their transmissions and their engine architecture to run at highway speeds in three gears, an underdrive gear, a direct gear, and an overdrive gear. That is really versatile. We, we can't do that. We can do it with the DD15. There's not many other engines we can do it with. It, we just, it's that short, 
connecting rod, the side loading of the piston. They've taken that all away. And it is just a really efficient architecture. And and I here's a case where I'm not sure why other manufacturers aren't copying it. And I think International Engines is it, that new one will be a pretty close copy of this because there's some Volvo people over at International now. I, I really think that's the whole key is that architecture. And then you look at those that bottom end; it is stout really stout the the most heavy duty on the market it's got more surface area than any of the other engines i said the other day the premier heavy haul truck right now should be volvo between their transmissions with those crazy low creeper gears sometimes two creeper gears and a really low reverse a, a engine that we could spec to run at highway speeds in three gears and as stout as that bottom end is, that should be the premier heavy haul truck right now. It, and they have the model. I think it's the VXN. I think that's right. Um, we were just talking about that the other day. I noticed on your post that you showed like a comparison of the rods and like Volvo has four bolt uh, connecting rods. So does Cummins. They have the vertical or the, the cut, whatever you want to call it, side cut. And Cummins has had that too for a while. That's where I think a lot of them are copying. They've been copying each other for years. But in my world, like like when, when you do race engines, whether it be drag race, circle track, whatever, the shorter the rod, the less the torque, though. Because the longer the rod, you have more leverage from the center of the axis, that, which would be but, the crankshaft. But what happens, so what? there's a couple concepts that we've never really talked about before, and it came from Joel's work with Volvo on not RPM. We, we talk all the time about RPM, but what's more important is piston speed and the architecture of the engine determines the piston speed. We wanna slow that piston down as much as possible because we reduce a lot of drag that way. And then that long connecting rod pulls way over to the side and we we are side loading that piston which creates all kinds of drag that's really what we're getting away from with the short connecting rod okay and what we can still go very low rpm again it, it's the the overall architecture here not just the connecting rod length so we can go very low RPM, we can go very low piston speed, and we reduce that side load. We reduce a lot of drag and this engine runs much freer. We can run it at those low temp, those low RPMs and keep the heat in the engine. Here's a case where we're running at a low RPM to try to keep heat in the engine because it's good for the emissions. And that's why we're seeing if these are specced right and driven right, we don't need additives, we don't need anything, and we're not seeing emission issues. Interesting. I want to do some more research on that, too, because the whole um, concept is just... Hey, uh, if you would like, I might be able to arrange some training through Volvo for you. Yeah, we can see. If you want, it's just a, it's a Zoom call. I, I may be able to do it. Um, Joel set one up for me. And that's how I, this finally clicked. We had never really talked about engine architecture ever when it came to fuel economy. We just everybody's, it was what it was. And we didn't realize that there was a better way to design this engine. And I think right now Volvo's got it. Yeah. Yeah, the... Um I guess if we want to, do we want to jump back to where we were? I don't even sure. remember where we were now. I don't remember where we were. I, I, 
I think there was uh, one point that I kind of wanted to hang on to just to mention briefly that has nothing to do with that. But um, when I, when I was saying like there's different CPLs for a low horsepower, a high horsepower, it makes sense to have like a turbocharger trimmed for a higher horsepower versus a low. You wouldn't want to put the same turbo on a 450 horse engine versus um, a 600 horse engine. Right. But I don't understand why they don't do some things like oil coolers. They put a better oil cooler on the 605 and then they do like a single element one on the 450. Why not just keep the better oil cooler on both? I'm that that's the one of the things that sort of confuses me why they don't do that. Yeah, I, I, never I agree. Straight answer. Yeah, I, I agree with because that. Because I'm too. I'm okay with having different CPLs and added complexity if it makes each version the efficiency series versus the productivity series better if it makes one better than the other like the smaller ones they increase the compression ratio but i just i'm not sure if i see a, a fuel economy increase versus the efficiency series versus the productivity i don't know what kind of real world data is out there but in theory that compression ratio increase does net you better thermal efficiency which should lead to fuel economy but i'm just not sure that it ever does the cummins used to do a lot of catering to different people too and i think that's where a lot of these different varieties and flavors of engines have evolved from was if you get a guy that's an owner operator wants to spec out his truck this way they'll build it if you get a fleet owner that says i like that but i want here less more there whatever they'll make that change the cpl and they've become accustomed to tailoring to all different types of varieties of drivers fleet owners everybody that that's where I think this diversity has evolved from. It's kind of in a positive way that way. I, I, I get where you guys are saying, you know, it's really complex. There's a lot of excessive stuff. What isn't? Show me one manufacturer out there that isn't complex anymore. Show me one guy that's over the age of 45 that can pop a hood of a car or a truck out there and say, yep, I'd love to work on that thing. <laughs> no, I, I, I get it, but... I, yeah. I, in the real world, everything has become far more complicated, harder to work on. I, I get that with vehicles, but it's nuanced. I, for me, it's not just, okay, they're all complicated, just deal with it. Some are slightly less complicated, and that can be a pretty big difference when this is how you make your money every day. Exactly. It's like option overload. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you right. have a, a, a you get a cascading with a DD15 at the D12 transmission. Do you, would you like that overdrive or direct drive so, there? Okay. So and here, it comes with like here, here again yep. is where I'll say the OEMs have fallen down for decades. As trucks started to get more complicated, they became more proprietary. You know, it's it's funny we say they copy each other. That's true. I see that all the time, but they're moving more and more proprietary all the time. I mean, that's been the trend since oh, I've been okay. buying trucks. So it, it is funny that they copy each other, but then they become so proprietary that you've got to specialize in a truck almost these days. It's hard to understand all of these complicated trucks because they're all different. So right. yeah. here's another area where I think Volvo is finally getting on board and they're starting to see some success with this. They sat down and, and Joel was a part of this and they said, how can we build a really fuel efficient build giving us all these options? And they created a spec. 
and they call it the efficiency series. And today you can walk into a Volvo dealer, know nothing about all of this stuff we're talking about, engine architecture, transmission ratios, rear end. Just if you know nothing, but you walk in and say, I want the efficiency spec, you're going to get the right truck. And I said, I hope they continue. And I said, if I were Volvo right now, the next spec I would come out with that you can just walk in and ask for would be heavy haul. And and I know that's not their market, but it should be. And if they just said, here's a heavy haul spec, just walk in and say, I want a heavy haul spec. And this is what you're going to get. And if they can pull this off and the, the trick is training their salespeople, and that's usually where it falls apart. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, Kevin? Because what happens for the guys that like to have things custom tailored to their application? I mean, not all trucking is the same out there, too. You know, the the analogy I might use here, and you're right, there, there's a, there's a trade-off here. If they become so proprietary and build their own specs, and then you can't go outside of those specs, I hope they don't do that. Here's the other thing. Honestly, I I liked it when you didn't you couldn't walk into a dealer and get a well spec truck, which is mostly the case because it gives us an advantage. You know, once this becomes you just buy a truck and it's fuel efficient, uh, half of our shows would cease to exist. We talk about efficiency all the time. We talk about specs all the time. We talk about creating, you know, a really efficient truck because that gives you an advantage in business. And in some ways, this is taking that away. At some point, if they're successful at this, everybody will be able to walk in and buy an efficient truck. And we probably won't be modifying them as much anymore. And I I, kind of don't want to see that coming. No, I, I agree with Lee. I think the bar is just going to be raised up. Like I remember when you know a ten second car was fast. Now you can buy an SUV. No, I, yeah, I mean, fast. I, well, I, even but the truck world, eleven miles long was a was a dream, like a, an unfathomable, impossible feat that would only happen if the truck fell out of the sky. Yes, and it, now it's it's not rare to see someone get nine, ten miles per gallon. Yes, yeah. that's pretty common. We're pushing yep. the twelve now. 12 is kind of the new target. Can we get there consistently? We've got some guys getting there. And I don't mean just on one cherry-picked run. I mean, you know, 30 days, if, if everything goes right, we've got some people getting close to those numbers. That will continue, but let me ask you this. If I pull into your shop and I've got a, you know, er, late 90s, early 2000 truck or a glider, or I pull in with a new pack car. Which one can you spend two weeks modifying to get better fuel economy? And which one are you going to stare at and go, I'm not really sure what to do here? Look at all the things yeah. we are going to do to that late 90s, early 2000. All kinds of stuff. Well, we and, just haven't figured out what to do with it. That's kind of my point, and I'm I'm not sure if we're going to. It's getting more complicated to create and improve these as well. Well, then you're also, I feel like the biggest reason things haven't progressed is just the constraint of emissions. You you can put whatever manifold, camshaft, piston combination in a 60 series, you have no worries. Right. You, you, You breathe on a... You know, an X-15 in the wrong way and it throws check-in. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, 
yeah. you can't just be swapping cams and pistons and everything like that without the after treatment or EGR throwing a hissy fit. But the other side hey. of that is the guys that come to us as caterpillars. Hey, I got a C18 cam. I got 16 F1 pistons in it. <laughs> I want to run. What turbo do I run? I have no idea, dude. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. I have a one. Yeah. The turbo hey. numbers. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, we're going to bring Bruce and I just looked up on the board and I, I, See him there. Bruce, good morning. Well, good morning, Kevin. Great great to have you back. We've uh, we've been having a robust discussion about engines and engine designs and how complex they are and pretty interesting stuff. So I'm sure sure we're ready to hear from you this morning. What's on your mind? Well, you know, I was listening to you for the last five minutes, even though we may not be able to change camshafts and compression ratios and injector flows and things. But the more complicated they get, the busier we get because of the lack of people that are able to fix them. Yeah, that's a good point. So a good point. You know, so we will we, always be busy in the shop. Yeah. So, you know, we could kind of separate into that from, you know, are we doing regular maintenance from repairs, which like you say, is getting far more complicated. So it keeps you a lot busier, especially if you're a good shop that knows how to troubleshoot. Um, the other side of mm-hmm. it is, is the modification and upgrades and improving. And it just seems like every year we can do less of that. And it's no different than cars. I mean, all of us on the phone right now, look at what we used to do with cars and we don't do any of that stuff anymore. That's right. So what else is on your mind today, Bruce? That's it for right now. Something will come up. All right. Let's, uh, since we uh, took kind of a pause there and we were all over the board this morning, it was all good stuff. Let's uh, let's jump to some phone calls. We're going to get started in Kentucky. Richard, welcome to the program. Hey guys, uh, uh, this is for I know how he likes to go into details, but I've got a 12.7 Detroit of my T600 Kenworth, and I want to get me a, a rebuildable block, and I want to go through this engine, not the one that's in my truck, but it, uh, another one, go through it myself and rebuild an, uh, an engine myself. I want to take that take on that challenge. So I'm, I'm was calling in to see if I could get y'all's opinion. Uh, and I know that there's different, uh, uh, a lot of number of things that you got to do to build an engine, connecting rods and main bearings and rod bearings and putting the crankshaft and all that in and bolts and all that. But I was wanting to find out if I can get y'all's input on what are the most critical things on rebuilding a 12.7 Detroit and on that, what are some things that I need to be looking at in a block whenever I'm trying to pick out a block to to rebuild? Well, I'll start, and then that would be worse. Leroy can come in. Um, finding a good block is a little bit of an issue right now, but if you do find the block, you need to take it to a machine shop and have them do the line bore, resurface, and cut the upper counter bores and inspect the lower counter bores. But you can inspect the lower counter bores for pitting before you even buy the block. It's really hard to see the cracked upper counter bores until you start to cut into them. Now, 
good machine shop can cut that crack out of there and put a repair sleeve in it. Okay. And they can square the block. They you check the um, deck height from the center of the crank bore on number one cylinder versus number six, and then you cut it accordingly. So, and then the crankshaft has to be polished, magnapluxed, and straightened because they do bend. They do bend as the block warps. So okay. it's critical to have a good machine shop, and we can help you with all this. Where do you live? I live in uh, Missouri, southern Missouri. Do you truck up our way? Uh, not as much. I, uh, I go regularly up to Elkhart, Indiana, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I ain't scared to go up there. I can I can make a special trip if I need to, especially if I get a if I find a good block, I would like to have a good uh, machine shop. If y'all can do that work, I would like to have y'all to do that work on the block for me. We would refer you to our machine shop that we use. Okay. Okay. And they're on the Ohio PA line, so. Okay. And and then, you know, we would build it to the BK spec and uh, balance the rods and balance the pistons and pins because you may get two connecting rods that are, you need to get them reconditioned. Uh, we right. only use the Detroit Reman rods, but two may come from Mexico, two may be from Singapore, and two may be from China. So that's why we like to balance the rods and pistons. That's, what is that, six or $800, Eric? I think it's an 800 flat fee now. About $800 to balance the rods and pistons. It takes all okay. day to do it. And... Uh, then you build from there, and you'll get yourself an engine manual, and you'll have all the specs in there, and we'll give you the spec for the liner protrusion, and we can help you procure the parts and talk about horsepower and which turbo would be best for you, and go from there. All right. But I like I like I like the fact that you want to build your own engine because that's a great way to learn. And it yeah. really makes you appreciate the engine and when you go through all that work. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some uh, rebuild kits to maybe to try to go ahead and get some in. I noticed that uh, this on this one website I've seen, they, they got several different ones. But on the, on the BK model, the, I think it was a 16.5 to 1 ratio. I'm, I'm assuming that's for the BK um, but they had two different types of pistons on there. I think I don't. I, I can't remember both of them. I think one of them was the articulated. They looked like one of them might have been a single piston. The other one might have been a, a two-piece piston. And I watched a video on a guy rebuilding a Detroit on YouTube, and his the top of his piston. His I think his was a two-piece piston, and the top part came apart. And was stuck at the top of the of the cylinder, and it was making all kind of racket. And um, that's when he dug into it, he found out that's what it was. The top part of the piston come apart, and was stuck at the top of the cylinder, and it was just banging on the bottom up, bottom of it. So I, I think he had the, a D-deck, be the one. I think he had yeah, a D deck three. Three, yeah, the I think D- it was a three. The D deck three, the wrist pin was bolted to the bottom of the piston. The D deck four has a full floating wrist pin. So you want to build a D deck four and not a D deck three. Okay. Okay. Uh, Second, Bruce, two things to keep in mind. 
is the D-Deck 3 and the D-Deck 4 blocks are different. D-Deck 3 has that two-piece piston. The, the, um, the bottom of the pin gets bolted to it. The D-Deck 4 does not. But the biggest difference on the blocks is the D-Deck 3 does not have external piston cooling nozzles. Or does. You can't put a D-Deck 4 kit in a D-Deck 3 without having oiling issues. Blocks were never machined for Diversity, the biggest overcome is finding a good block. The first thing, get it into a machine shop, have a magnet block that test it for any cracks. A lot of these blocks we're seeing now have a couple million miles on them. And almost, and I, and I don't want to rain on your parade here. I, I admire you too for wanting to learn it and build it. But you're going to have to take this with a lot of patience. You're going to have to pick and choose your blocks very carefully because there's not a lot of good ones out there to go around anymore. They've been used up, a lot of them. There are some good ones out there. Don't get discouraged, but try right. to, to do due diligence and make sure you get it to a machine shop. The surfaces will sag in the center, and you can only cut that deck surface once, maybe twice, depending on how many thousands, because then you're taking out the gear lash on your bull gear to all your accessory drives. Now, we do offer a 10,000 oversized head gasket for those to try to compensate if it's too low, but you want to get a okay. good qualified machine shop to look at it first, because if you pick the wrong block, or you find a crack later on after they're doing machine work, it's too late. you, you got to do all the, the checking first up front. What about a 14-liter block? <laughs> I uh, build a 14-liter. You could, but those are almost like a diamond in the rough as well because a non- Why? They made a lot of D-Deck 5s. Well, that's a, that's a gray area. It's just a D-Deck 5 block. It's a 14-liter block. I don't know how the laws pertain to that. On what? They made D-Deck 6s. They were too. You the mean emissions a, I, I, the emissions? I, I, yeah, I think he could build it to a 2002 14-liter Correct. Detroit yeah. to put in yep. his truck. There was a, a very short run of non-emission 14-liters. Yeah. But that was the D-Deck 4. Yeah, it's a D-Deck 5 block. Who's going to look? I don't know. Did they stamp them? <laughs> I think they're <laughs> yeah. It's a 14-liter. Why not? I, I don't know. I don't know how the law works like that. I, I would like to get some clarity on that. Because I've had guys call me in the past and saying, I have like this exact example. I want to build a D-Deck 5 into a D-Deck 4, but it's in a glider. And the guy yeah, gives so, you a VIN number. And you let, know let me help you. with the. So we have the technicalities. This is kind of like the warranty issue. We have the law and the technicalities, and then we just have to deal with the real world. And, and the two usually don't match. And this is another case. Technically, we would have to go back and find the block originally. Was it built as an emission engine? Then technically, you can't build that block to a non-emission engine, even if you're putting it in a glider. That doesn't matter. That glider had to be built with the serial number of the engine. When you order a glider, you have to give them an engine. They build the glider to the serial number of the engine you give them. And that's what makes it right. legal. Any variation on that, technically, you're violating emission laws. Now, is in the real world, is there anybody out there that would catch that? Probably not especially if you just own it and now you're out running around with it. If you're a shop and maybe you're caught building multiples of these because you think you found some workaround, you might get busted for that. But I think that's even a stretch. So uh, technically we would have to follow a, a block serial number through to make sure it 
could be built as an on a mission, but I have a feeling if you grab any 14 liter block and you build it, you could just say, no, this at one point they did have an on a mission version of this engine. So on the 14 liter block, um, I would build it at, at a 14 liter non emission or use the 12 yeah. seven. Yeah. yeah. As an H as an HK. Uh, okay. So the 12 seven, uh, rebuild kit will, will be able to go in there. No, we went on a 12 seven. You get instead of a BK rebuild kit, you get an HK built rebuild kit. Oh, HK. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Well, I sure appreciate y'all's help and everything. And, uh, uh, oh, uh, one thing, uh, Bruce, do you know, um, the guy at Banks Power? Yes, I do. Y'all seem like, it seems like y'all would be a be good friends. He, he done a comparison on the 2023 and the 24 Duramax. And uh, he said one of the things that was cutting down on a lot of the emissions was the piston design, how they, change the piston design on the top on the pistons it comes up in more of a pointed cone shape right in the center and he said that that was cutting down a lot of the emissions on it and he said that it might be that they could work that to where it, it wouldn't have to have so much of these emission related components on there i thought that's pretty interesting i watched that video last night on youtube of him explaining all the differences between those two years did gail banks himself do the explanation. Oh, we just lost that call. Um, and we got to move on. The calls are starting to pile up on us. You know, for years, Bruce, when we get those calls from people who are talking about the smaller diesels and they're really serious about it, I've always just said you should probably go follow banks. And, and that's it, it, about as close as what we do here in the, the big engines. Um, they've been doing forever on small engines. So it's always been my recommendation. Let's go to Iowa. Matt, welcome to the program. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I believe when you guys were talking about the Volvo connecting rods, yes. um, Eric had it absolutely right. A longer connecting rod does reduce the side loading of the piston because, you, you know, you got less angle the longer that rod gets. <clears throat> and I'm going off of memory here, so I can't verify this is all Joel's work that the Volvo does have a longer connecting rod, but they have a shorter, shorter stroke. stroke. Yes. Uh, so it's off the crankshaft then. Yeah, that's yep. where that's yeah, where the, the, the overall architecture comes in, right? This is where it gets confusing. You start talking about longer rods, shorter stroke, shorter rods, longer stroke, and, and the combination of the two can either create or eliminate that side loading and slow down piston speed. Yeah, and that's the shorter stroke is where the piston speed comes way down. And you, you got to realize, the, you know, somewhere between four and five inches, I think, are the industry standards. And the piston and speed a has... five-inch stroke... Go ahead. Finish that thought. Yeah, every revolution, you're moving, you know, an extra inch up and down. That's a lot more of your rings scraping on your so, on your liners. And at a lot faster speed. So if we could... Matt, that is torque also. So if we could show this, this is one of those concepts that it's much easier, even for me, as I'm trying to explain it. Sometimes I think I'm confusing people more. If we can show this in a diagram, there, that piston speed has two factors. One is drag. Like, Matt, you just talked about. The faster that thing's trying to go through the cylinder, the more drag you're creating. 
and the more wear. And the other issue on piston speed is the piston running away from the compression faster. If we can slow that piston speed down, we can improve combustion because the piston's not running away from the combustion event. And that's where people confuse the, you know, Joe says down sped engine. He's talking about piston speed. Most people just think it's RPM. It's both. RPM is right. one point of it. Right. It's both. But it's that yeah. stroke length that makes a big difference. Yeah. So, I have a Johnny Cash truck. <laughs> yes, you do. It's it, it's a it's a 2002 T600 with a 99 2WS Cat, and then I cut the the back suspension and axles off, and that's a 2016 T680 back there i was looking at trying to get one of the new endurance transmissions in here but unfortunately my transmission failed and didn't have time to do the research but um bruce has asked about that a couple of last couple of weeks about these newer transmissions and why they're more efficient i know the endurance has a planetary gear in the back the back box on like a 13 speed so instead of four gears, you're down to one planetary gear. So there's a lot less drag there. And then all the 12 speeds, they're all single counter shaft, so, not dual. Right. So the difference in the single and the dual, we've got a lot less mechanical drag, and there's also a lot less oil pumping going on in the uh, new modern transmission. So we go from nope. where we've traditionally said when you can run one of the older transmissions in direct we pick up about three percent inefficiency and and that's significant that's why we worked so hard to keep a truck in direct as often as possible we didn't want to lose that three percent in both performance and fuel economy the newer transmissions we're really down around one percent is all the difference in efficiency between direct and overdrive so now specking that truck again to run in an underdrive gear, a torque multiplier, a direct gear, and an overdrive gear to really, really get RPM down, it, that has been unheard of until this configuration. And this is just my experience, and I'll give the logic behind it, why it makes sense. And this is older transmission. We got to be very clear when we talk about this stuff nowadays that old technology versus new technology it's probably not the same in a newer transmission but my 13 speed running one gear down in 12th gear i think is the least efficient gear to run in you're correct because yeah my transmission because i had 308s in here originally and ran in 12th gear my transmission temperature dropped 50 degrees when I switched to the 253s and up to direct. So we've, right. we've always kind of said that too. We, when a truck came to us that had been yep. spec to run in that, that second or first overdrive, whichever you want to call it, we hated that setup. It just did not perform well uh, on, on, in the real world at all. And that's where those the, the 308s came in and everybody thought that was such a great spec. I, I've never liked that setup. There are a couple times you can make it work, but if you're gonna spend a lot of time in that, that second overdrive in the older transmissions, I agree. It just doesn't seem to work well. 
And yeah, and the problem is, just to go through the mechanics of it, in 12th gear, you are running both counter shafts in the older 13 speed. Right. So you, you have mechanical drag and oil inside pumping. that transmission. And a lot more oil churn. Yep. Yeah. So that's why 13th gear or 18th and 18th speed, it would be more efficient than running one gear down. But, you know, dropping to direct in the older transmissions is where you really have the gain. That's why That's why we tell you, hold on. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dogfight? <laughs> um, no comment. But, <laughs> so, free but that's all I really had for defending my honor saying I was right so I'll give you a free t-shirt for that one thank you <laughs> <laughs> alright the calls are piling up we're gonna knock some out we're gonna go to Indiana Butch welcome to the program Oop, let me try that again there we go welcome yeah hey uh, I I just got uh, the last two weeks, I've had a retina surgery on my eye, so I'm face down being very bored. I'm a full-time technician for that. I drove almost 2 million miles over this country. But uh, the wealth of information that I've gotten in the last two weeks, just listening, going back all of 23, I'm halfway through 22 of listening to the podcast. But uh, the fuel additive that you're using for uh, cleaning the trucks really yes. has impressed me. Uh, is that, okay, we've got a couple of customers with Hino's and Isuzu's, constant EPF problems. Have you, do you have anybody that's using it in those? Are, are we good to go on that? Or You're yes. good to go on that. You're good to go on anything with gasoline, two-stroke, four-stroke, or diesel. Okay. I, I okay. Have, it was not designed for gasoline. When I asked Dr. Jane about it, she says, you know, I designed it for diesel, but it does wonders in gasoline, and especially two-stroke engines. But in whether it's a Mizuzu, whether it's a Hino, it, uh, a Deutz, doesn't matter. Uh, we had a guy running it in the Dosan. I think that's a Korean it, it bores a hole about a 12 inches in diameter, and then they fill it with rock and and concrete, <laughs> not yeah. cement, concrete. Really... And, and then the moisture makes it a solid pillar. But all the other ones, they had to do a 45-minute regen every morning. The guy running the catalyst started the machine and started boring holes. So even in foreign diesels, it worked great. Yeah, sure. So I'm probably going to be ordering a, a, a gallon just because I want my customers to try it. I realize it'll probably cut down on my uh, exhaust work, but hey, it uh, will. hopefully they'll be happy and, and spread the word. It will eliminate almost all of your emission work if you get all your customers on it, but there's so much other work to do. Wouldn't you rather yeah. do other work on a truck other than emissions? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, and then the second question, I'm, I'm laying here at the house, and they sent me this from the shop. Uh, we took They took a 10-speed transmission out, and they sent it into the transmission company. They looked it over and said the drive and overdrive gears 
and clutch are racked to the point where they need to be replaced. Okay, what are they talking about? The customer wants to have a clear understanding of what racked, over racked means. Did you say rack, R-A-C-K? Yeah. Well, I've never I've, heard I've that. Never heard I, I would, I would right say they're war, they're war, but what is racked? I don't, I don't understand that terminology. That's, yeah, that kind of threw me for a loop, but uh, yeah, I, I just I say they're, the they're probably worn. Yeah. So, well, hey, I just wanted to give you guys a thumbs up. You guys are. I don't know why I haven't done this earlier, but uh, yeah, it's it's a great wealth of information, and I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Well, thank you. All right, let's uh, say that again. I said, I wonder if it was cracked oh. instead of racked. Ra- oh, that makes more sense. Oh, but didn't know, you use the term over racked, over cracked? That doesn't make sense either. Yeah, okay, when, never when, mind. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard cracked. <laughs> when I go down to Portland, I think I see some people that are over cracked. I think that's different, though. Yeah. All right, let's. Uh, yeah, might be. Yeah. <laughs> Let's head off to California. Brad, welcome to the program. Hello? Yes. Hey, guys. Uh, hey, I came into Pittsburgh Power in March and had a turnip done on the truck, and I got the power. Boy, did I. I got the power that I was looking for. Um, in fact, I had you guys remove... I, I was hesitant to remove the factory governor at 75, but I had you guys do it. And man, I, I'll, I'll just say I didn't realize my foot was so heavy. Anyway, <laughs> I am <laughs> loving the fact that and when I go into 18th gear, it's great. I've got power. The thing wants to run. It wants to play. But I have to back it back down for fuel efficiency. And so I rarely go into 18th gear. Uh, or, or let me say, I catch myself in 18th gear and have to back it back down. My question for you guys, I, I've had the OTR diagnostics in the past, and I think I'm going to go ahead and get your laptop, uh, but I have some questions about that, okay? Uh, first of all, I still have an after-treatment system. I like to run California. I like to go to the ports. Uh, will that laptop monitor the efficiency of the after-treatment system? What engine and what year is it? I don't uh, know if I caught that. 20, the truck is a 2020 W9, so I'm literally putting a brick in the wind, and it's an X15 uh, 565. Yeah, the laptop will view all the data that you need. Um, as far as it spitting out just a straight-up efficiency number, it's not going to do that. You're going to have to interpret the data that it gives you. The easiest way to do that is to take short logs as you drive and then load the logs into some sort of spreadsheet program like Microsoft Excel or OpenOffice Calc, the free version. Um, once you load the data into there from a CSV log, then you should be able to view the like a graph that it would make, and then you can tell the efficiency of how well things are working based on that. Now, Leroy, are you talking about, like, say, inlet knocks and outlet knocks? What, what kind of numbers are you talking uh, Inlet knocks, USB temp, DPF, inlet and outlet temp. You can um, make a lot of – you can draw a lot of conclusions from the data. I mean, if you wanted to, you could just take a log with the laptop and then just send me the CSV file, and I can send you back some sort of a little quick typed-up report about how it's doing. Okay. The reason I asked is I've had a lot of after-treatment-related repairs, 
and years prior. And if I can just monitor the efficiency of that stupid thing, you know, I can. Now, I have been running your catalyst since the, since the first of the year. And, you know, so far, so good there. But I just, I want to, I want to watch it. I want to bake it. I don't need any problems. You know, another, another quick question about the catalyst. Can I run, or would you guys suggest to run any other, uh, like, cetane type, uh, you know, what am I trying to say, additive along with that? I mean, that's just to rid the engine of the soot, correct? Yeah, the catalyst just gets rid of the soot. If you want to run some sort of cetane or something along with that to improve ignition quality, you can also do that. Okay. Okay. Now, I would say if you if you wanted to just just go back to your original point about the efficiency thing, if you pull up on either your OTR device or your laptop the inlet knocks and the outlet knocks, and you just see what the ratio is between those numbers. Like for instance, if you have eighty five hundred on the inlet. Yeah, you can just do the ratio and then just see if it's about, yeah, 80%. I don't uh, think yeah, so parameters. Ideally, I, I'm able to watch a whole lot of other parameters because I can see the inlet and outlet with the OTR. I've just stopped my subscription on that, and I'm ready to grab the laptop. And, Leroy, I've actually talked to you, it was probably about a month ago, to say, hey, I'm thinking about either going somewhere for a remote tune or just buying the laptop so that I can, you know, make the tweaks. Uh I don't want to. I don't want to mince my words, or I don't want to say things incorrectly. But I, I had the impression that coming in there that I would get a an efficiency bump. I'm sorry, a, a performance bump and an efficiency. You know, so, something better as far as fuel mileage. And I definitely got the definitely got the oomph, but the fuel mileage is about the same. And I'm thinking I could. I'm thinking I'm willing to sacrifice some of the performance in order to have a better fuel efficiency. Yeah, that makes sense. Say, hey, someone are say, you driving it by the side. boost gauge? I have started watching the boost gauge uh, since some of your callers have noted that. I never did that in the past. Uh, and unfortunately, like I said, sometimes the foot just gets heavy. And I look down and I'm like almost 40 on the boost. I'm like, whoa, buddy. Uh, mm-hmm. So got to train myself to back it off. Uh, I don't think I can ever run at 10. I think one of your callers said something about running at 10. Ugh. Are you driving right no, now? I, no, I'm in a construction zone waiting to be flagged through. But uh, okay. So on the level that you're given speed, what's your turbo boost? I normally am between like 20 and 30. No, you can't be that high. Of course you don't have any fuel mileage. Can't be between twenty and thirty psi on the level. You're going way too fast. Yeah, I, I hardly ever see ten. I mean, of course, I see zero right now. I'm perfectly stopped, but you know, I, I never see tens, and I, I have no idea how anybody could drive a ten. So, so let's go back to my old, my good friend Carl Kellner, who's since retired from trucking on us. Uh, he's fishing in Florida, but that's that's a good thing for him. Uh, <laughs> He would run from Buffalo to Chicago, pulling a reefer, 379P, 2WS Cat, had all of our stuff on it, had ungodly amounts of horsepower, 264 gear, super single tires. At Kevin Rutherford's speed, 58, he was at zero pound of boost. Wow. He got 8.3 mile per gallon out of that 379. Hmm. 
And then he got a local run, so he built a T-800 with a C-12. And that's the one on power level 5 on a power box. He had no power box on it. It was 729 horsepower out of a C-12. And that, from Buffalo to Rochester and Syracuse and back at 58 miles an hour, he would sit on zero to two pound of boost, 264 gear, super single, double over 18, running in 16th gear. And uh, he was in the between eight and nine mile of the gallon. So you got to just try it, work it, and see what it takes to bring that boost down. Years ago, Kevin Kevin and I were, Kevin, Lisa, Deb, and I were ATBing in Moab, Utah. And Kevin and I were talking about speeds and things. And on my 95 Dodge, on my trailer with my ATV in it, I decided to try Kevin's speed. Well, I did, I, I did 60. Coming back to Colorado, which is a lot uphill, I gained two miles to the gallon. I really <laughs> I worked remember. on keeping that boost gauge down. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, trust me, I could use that two miles to the gallon. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so next time the next time you're when you're out on the highway, look and see and and um, try seventeen, try sixteen gear. It, what rear gears do you have? Uh, I've got on. a factory three sixty three. Uh, hold on a second. What? I, I wanna what? go back to something you said, Bruce, because one of the things I've always complained about when we talk about fuel economy is when you read the research on fuel economy, everything's a percentage. And I've thought that that doesn't make sense to me when we do. So if we say that this fuel economy strategy improves fuel economy by 5%, well, that means if we've got somebody in a truck that's getting five miles to the gallon and somebody getting 10, the guy getting 10 gets twice as much gain. And when we deal with trucks, it seems like it's almost the opposite. The, the lower your fuel economy is, the bigger gains you get, and then it gets harder and harder. But I just thought of something. When we talk about cars, it's it's not a big deal to improve a car by two miles to the gallon. That's a much smaller percentage. So why does it work there? It, it actually makes sense when you start comparing cars to trucks. Slow down, gain two miles to the gallon instead of three-tenths of a mile per gallon. But when we're dealing with trucks getting five and 10 miles to the gallon, it doesn't work right. Did I explain that? Did anybody understand what I just tried to say? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I remember you saying that on previous calls, Kevin, something something between a percentage and a ratio. Yeah. Or, or it, they'll, well, just, tell, they'll tell you you it, get two tenths or something like that. Yeah. When we talk about trucks, I try to go with tenths of a mile per gallon gain from our testing rather than make it a percentage because the percentage doesn't seem to make sense to me. It seems to work backwards until we compare cars to trucks and then the percentage thing does seem to work. That's why I'm confused. Um, so what speed do you go on the level? What speed do I go on the level? I don't know if I understand what you mean. On the level ground. Oh, on level ground? You're going out Sorry. across Iowa or Nebraska. What speed are you going? You mean when there's no traffic and no uh, no popos anywhere? No, no traffic, no police. <laughs> I, if I'm in a hurry, and, and honestly, guys, I, there are times that being in a hurry, doing one extra load a week makes sense, okay? I will sacrifice the fuel in order to get that extra load in a, in a week, okay? So I will do that. I'll run 70, I'll run 72 in a 70, okay? Mm -hmm. But I also understand if I'm, if I'm strictly looking at fuel, 
I understand that I need to be 65 or less. I thought you were going to tell me 75 to 80, but uh, so you're not so bad. Well, what I'm kind not of tra- what kind 80. of trailer are you pulling? I've normally got a step deck. It's in the shop right now. Uh, right this okay. second, I'm pulling a drive-in. Okay, so step deck is good. Do you have a little rolling resistance tires? I do not. I got Yoko's on the uh, on the step deck. They are 255, 70, 15s, I believe. So those are trailer tires then. Yeah. That's a true trailer tire, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's good. You, that, I don't know the rolling resistance, but most Yokohama trailer tires are really low, and that's the most important part. What do you have on the drives? On the drive, I've got Bridgestones. The truck is all Opro 24s, so I sometimes am limited on what I can buy. Right. I remember when I went to buy steers. When I went to buy steers for this truck after getting an MD line, uh, Chris. Chad over in Kansas City told me to buy the uh, X line, and I they don't make them. Correct. Michelin does not make yeah, them you, in the low pro twenty four. Correct. It, it, at some point, I think anybody who's interested in fuel economy should be doing what they have to do to convert to low pro twenty twos. It's just our more fuel efficient tire, and you have way more options in that size now. And you, I asked you the rear that. gear, I. I asked you your rear gear, and you said something, but it didn't come across. 353s? 363? 363s? 363s? 363. Who makes that? Mm-hmm. Oh, the... the Isn't that I'd a Now I'm driving. You said 363? Okay. I've never even heard of that gear. Unless it's some weird Meritor. Did, I don't know. Did you spec this truck? Did you order this truck and give them the tire spec and the gear spec? Hello? Did we lose somebody? Oh, we did. We, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. We lost the whole call. Um, we'll try to maybe get that one back if we can. We'll, uh, we'll move on to Florida. Paul. Think about this. Nope. Go ahead, Bruce. Think about it. That was a fairly new truck, wasn't it? You know, I there was something else going on over here in the office, and you guys had control of it, so I missed part of that. But I, I heard him. I thought he so said I, didn't, a I don't know what year it was. But. which I actually remember. No, that was a 370 and a 373 we used to have. I don't, yeah. I, I don't remember a 363 ever. And then he's got 355s with, the, with that tire, which would give him basically a 336. Um, but we didn't get to talk about RPM on the level with his 70, 72 and stuff like that. But you heard how much boost he's using and it's just way too much boost. Yeah. Yeah. We've either we're in the wrong gear. We've got a lot of drag going on. Something, something's not, and that's where he's losing all his fuel economy. Well, he's kind of running there in an average truck and he's not driving it very well. Uh, exactly. Hey, Paul, where Paul, where'd you come from? You, you <laughs> clicked on the button and oh, said, yeah, we go to right. Florida. And I, I was I, I, to, yeah, I was, and uh, I was, I was waiting to say howdy, but everybody started, to, well, Bruce I, started talking. And I, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to ask you, what are you doing in Florida? Uh, actually, I'm getting uh, MD alignment guys, the Rocky and Martin, the tag team here. They put new front springs in my truck, which turned out to be a bit of a big job. Because I came down here last night to where they're going to do it, and uh, they looking this morning, 
And uh, he's like, man, he said, this kind of would be a prick of a thing to work on. I said, yeah, it is for every job just about. So he's looking and he's like, I think we're going to have to take the radiator out so we can get to the bolts that hold the, oh, the front spring hanger. To get, oh. Yeah. And he said, if we got to take the radiator out, he said, we ain't doing it. So then they look and it's like, well, what if we take the hood off? So we had to take the hood off <laughs> so we could get in to get on the wrench on the top of the bolt so you'd undo the nut underneath. But oh, we got, we got like one fun. spring in. What's wrong with having to take a radiator on? What's so hard about that? These are alignment guys, not mechanic, not um, not. They don't. They don't want to do that. But it's a bit of a big job because take the AC off the front, the charge air cooler, the radiator, everything. So, but taking the hood yeah. off was easier. Yeah. Hey, Paul. Back in the eighties, when I did a lot of road work in other people's garages, and we didn't have cranes and forklifts, the guy that owned the truck and I'd be on. working on a truck. We took the radiator out just the two of us. Hey. Yeah. All right. So I, I do have a story, not quite a radiator, but close. And I, I've told this before, but it's been a while. So I, I, I've always talked about you've got to have a shop near your truck. You've got to build a relationship. So when I first got down to Orlando, I did that. I started building a relationship with a shop and mostly with the, the service manager. And then the service manager went out and started his own shop. So I followed him because I had the relationship with him. He was good. He really was. But the first time I came in, dropped off my truck for a bunch of work and said, oh, while it's here, test the charger cooler. And they wrote it up. And then I got a call later and the service manager called me directly. Now he's the owner. And he said, do you really want us to test this charger cooler? It's going to be really expensive. And I said, why? It should be a half hour labor. I'll give you an hour if you want. And he's like, oh, no, it's going to be way more than that. We, we're starting to take it out now. And we're going they were going to take out the charger cooler and send it out to be dunk tanked to see if it had any leaks or not. And I'm like, oh, please, please, please don't do that. You'll probably create a leak. Uh, so I had to educate them and we actually built them a charger cooler tester and they became a regular, they, they would test trucks when they came in. I said, it's one of the best things you could do for them and you. You create some work for yourself, you'll fix a problem they don't even know they have. But th there was somebody very educated, really good shop, but had no idea about testing a charger cooler. We made our own system. I, I can't even think how many years it's been. Yeah, a lot of charger yeah. cooler tests. So, yeah. So anyway, so they they finally, after they've been in the shop last week, and they finally found the problem, and the wiring harness showed up on uh, Friday morning, and it was about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I said, so if you cannot finish this job today, I don't want you to start it. And she says, let me find out. So she disappears a few minutes later. Yeah, we can we can finish it today. I said, okay, go. Get it done. So 5 o'clock, um, how's it getting on my truck? Uh, looks like it's probably going to be Monday. I said, what did I tell you this morning before you started the job? You told me you could finish it. Well, he's, I said, go tell the technician that's working on it. I got 200 bucks cash for him to stay late and finish it. So she disappears, comes back. He don't want to do that. He's already clocked out. Okay. So I went to the motel for the weekend. So when I go back there yesterday, yeah, it's finished. And um, so the, he brings me the bill out. 
and I said to him, I said, I think I got screwed a little bit because your technician that worked on it the first time, he jumped through a couple of steps in the troubleshooting tree and he just replaced the knock sensor and did a regen. All checks okay at this time. I said, I didn't even go 70 miles and all the same problems came back. And I said, then you tell me Friday morning, yeah, we can finish it Friday night and you don't. So I spend $400 on a motel over the weekend. And I said, I think you should work with me a little bit. I said, I want a reduction in the labor. Uh, well, I can't authorize that, but I'll go and see the guy that can't. I said, tell him I'm standing right here if he wants to discuss it with me. So a few minutes later, the guy comes back around. He said, he's adjusting your bill. Okay, so they chopped about 500 bucks off it. But it was a very expensive week last week. And then I came down here because I was going to get this done last week, but I'm getting the front springs changed out. So by late today, I should be ready to go trucking and earn some money. Uh, yeah, always be careful with uh, scheduling a truck in on Friday if you think it's yes. uh, all day's job because sometimes it can become a two-day job and now yeah, well, you're stuck in a motel. So we, we try to be very careful. We use Friday as our – I'm going to let Eric – Eric does the scheduling. Eric, describe what we do with Fridays. Friday is a – scramble day <laughs> uh, we have a lot of jobs exactly yeah we, we and you've been here on friday paul uh yeah yeah, yeah but i yeah, usually i hadn't planned it that way so yeah that's why <laughs> we I, just love you that why well I, that's when when i show up there i either book her monday or a tuesday and because normally i'm exactly. there for two or three days so if I get there Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe, and then just in case you find something else, which has happened at times, and I've been there for the Friday, but it's better to show up at the start of the week. But exactly, this, they they told me it was seven hours worth of labor to install the wiring harness. And I thought, okay, that probably sounds about right. It's a bit of a big job. And um, so, and they're open till 6.30 p.m. Well, it was 10.30 in the morning. So I said, well, that's eight hours. He's probably going to have a lunch break. So that's still seven, seven and a half hours. Okay, should be able to get it done. Five o'clock, well, he's not making as good a progress as he thought he would. But the mechanic, even though the shop was open till 6.30, the mechanic was clocking out at five. So he didn't have seven hours of time. So, yeah. So, yeah, our, our hours are a little bit like that, too. It's a little bit similar. Like the shop hours are 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. The office is open until 5. And Fridays yep. are a scramble day. I mean, everybody wants to get out of here. All of our jobs need to be built out and get out the door because everybody wants to leave. I get it. Um, I try yep. not to schedule anything more than like an ECM tune or maybe like an overhead or something like this on, on a Friday. And by picking Monday or Tuesday is perfect. You, you do the exact is what everybody should. I do see a trend in Tuesdays. A lot of guys will want to deliver a load somewhere Monday close to us. That way they yeah, can get paid to get here too. Yeah, and then you sleep there Monday night and you're ready for thing Tuesday morning. Exactly. Yeah. So now the secret's out. Tuesday's going to be the favorite day. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. So. But, yeah, so I'm I'm just down here spending money like it's going out of fashion. So. It needs it. 1.2 million miles on a set of front springs. They're a little bit wore out. So, it's time. Yeah, I think I, I think I got my money's worth out of them, so I'm good with it. So there you go. Right, I'll carry on. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Let's go to 
South Dakota. Jackie, welcome. Hi. What's on your mind today? Well, a lot of things. You just talked to Paul, and it reminded me that, uh, you know, his pedal there was awfully expensive. I had to replace the pedal in my truck, and it comes with the uh, sensor and all that stuff, too. I had to replace mine because the pedal was actually busted. Like, the little wheel on the bottom broke, and it was digging into the deal underneath, so... But mine was only 220 bucks. It's still kind of bad saying that. I think he said his was like 1500 or something. <laughs> Jackie, yeah. Jackie, I have a question yes. for you. Yes? Why did you go through all this work on the truck you just bought when your other truck, you still have it? Because I need parts for the, um, the airbag system on the sleeper that I can't get. Mm, okay. Yeah, they're discontinued parts. So I've been trying to find like a... Um, you know, find stuff in a junkyard or whatever. It's, it started back before I had the truck. There was a couple of fat-ass drivers in it, you know, pardon my French. But when I first got that truck, it had two mattresses on the top bunk and two mattresses on the bottom bunk that were, like, dug out in a U-shape. So these guys must have been humongous. <laughs> and it started then, then. And then I think, you know, my cubby buddy has been overloaded with tools and all sorts of things. So, you know, going down the road over the years, it's just kind of beaten the hell out of it. And, uh, it got to where the airbags won't stay in, so they kind of pop out. So I'm just uh, trying to see if I can get these parts or whatever. I've actually thought about <laughs> there was a uh, a cab down in Georgia that Joel just found, and it was like five grand. And I thought, well, you know, help. Maybe I should just go buy that cab, bring it up, and freaking you know take it apart. I was originally going to do that with this truck, but it was too nice to scrap. So I thought, no, I better not do that. I'll just you know hang on to this one, but. God, almost $40,000 in repairs to this truck. Maybe I should have just, uh, you know, cannibalized the sleeper parts out of it <laughs> for the for the bunk there. But, yeah. I, I saw a side of you that I didn't know existed in all the years I've known you, following you on Facebook. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> oh, I can't say it over the air. <laughs> oh, because I was mad? <laughs> yeah. Bruce. Oh, you were mad. You were talking last week about owner-operators not wanting to, you know, they can't retire or whatever. Bruce, I've been home for two and a half months. Yes, I was mad. I missed my lungs last time because Landstar is dragging their feet about switching paperwork on a truck. Oh, my God. That's what it was. I thought about, about, you know what, I'll just put this thing looks close enough to my other one. I'll just put my bin on here and just freaking take off with it. Who's going to know? But I'm like, you know, the back part in the back of my mind. Like, somebody's going to find out at Landstar, and then I'm going to get my lease canceled, and, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So I just decided, just calm down. You need to clean that pig pen anyway. 21 days cleaning this truck. 21 days. <laughs> I don't know how people live in such filth. So, yeah, you talk about bad, I would. Yeah. Well, well, no, no, Jackie. I know what your other truck and how clean it was inside. So, clean to you is super clean, and it's probably way above what the average person would would be doing. But uh, you know, some people say they're going to buy this used truck and they're going to put it right to work and save some money and then make repairs to it. And I said, oh, it doesn't work that way. And no. you're a living example of it. Well, see, Jackie knows yeah, exactly you know, what she wants and needs to do to the truck before she ever puts it on the road at all. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, that, I mean, that was my first call with Pittsburgh Power. I want this, I want this, I want this. Some things I can live without, but there's some things that have to go, like, now, you know? That's just all there is to it. Yep. All right. All right, so, 
anyway, on to my question. I have a weird issue with the lights on my trailer. It's not the trailer. It's definitely the truck. This is still my same trailer, and um, it did not do it with my 2001. And I also checked the uh, pigtail multimeter to verify, uh, with the multimeter to verify it. So what is happening is when I turn my lights on the truck, obviously the lights come on the truck and the trailer. I only have one switch. It's not like I have a separate switch for a trailer lights like some trucks do. And when I turn off the lights, the lights go off on the truck, but they stay on on the trailer, and they will not go off until I turn the key to the truck off. The only part that's a little confusing to me is, because I've had that happen before, and it was just like a ground rubbing through to the ABS, is the fact that when I turn the truck on, they don't automatically come on. I have to, They wait until I turn the lights on. Then when they turn the lights on, then they will not go off again until I turn the truck off. Impressive. Any ideas? Nah, it's some sort of wiring issue. I'm not sure what it would be. <laughs> okay. So no it, idea it where to like yeah, I mean, you just got to start sort of at, at square one from where the where it starts from the switch, then you make your way to the relay, and then you make your way down. I'm assuming something is spliced in somewhere. We, we had a truck. It reminds me of a truck we had the other day. It wasn't a light issue, but let's say you, you started the engine and that the engine would run, right? If you turn the key off, the engine wouldn't shut off, right? <laughs> the engine right. was running. All right, so here's the proper sequence to turn this truck off. You turn, let's say it was off, you turn the engine on, you have to turn the engine fan off and then the truck would shut off. The manual fan switch on the dash, you would turn that on and then it would shut off. Wow. Two things you would think were completely irrelated was was the reason why that truck wouldn't shut off. Now, on Jackie's truck, does the switch from, like when you turn your headlight switch on, does that signal go through the chassis module? What what truck is it again? What year? What truck? Uh, no, it's an it's a SLD. I don't have no modules like that. 2000 oh, SLD 120. Yeah, okay, no, it's so all going to just be relays and switches. So well, it's a fairly yeah, straightforward system. I have the ABS fixed on the trailer uh, because the, the truck was not giving any power, ABS power to the trailer. What it ended up being was the harness that comes from the fuse box and goes back to the 710 is just old, and it had high resistance on the ABS wire. So he had to run an overlay for the ABS wire. He says eventually the other wires will, you know, have the same issue, but the harness is no longer available. You know, I haven't heard that in the last month or two. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. The light should just have power from the relay. But yours seems like you have you're getting key on power once the switch is turned on, which I don't know exactly how that's wired, but yeah, you it's just some sort of wiring issue. One thing just popped in my head, I may be completely off kilt here, but on that relay, do they work the same way as a turn signal relay? Like once a dial gets hot enough, it'll make contact and then open and close. No, they're different. Okay, yeah. I thought maybe it was like shorting out internally. It might just be a relay, but I I, I would oh, hope yeah. that they wouldn't put a single relay in the regular relay spot, but. Yeah, well, you never know. Well, uh, yeah, you know what? There's no telling. This truck has been just crazy with uh, backyard engineering. Um, yeah. I would really look it was relay, a honestly. Okay. I will do that because I actually have relays here so I can swap them out, too, if I see anything that looks funny. Because there's already been a couple connections that were found in the fuse box that were loose and have been um, arcing and melting stuff. So, um yeah, luckily that those were found. If not, there would have been a truck fire. 
Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, right. I don't have an uh, answer off the top of my head. It's just, it's bad. <laughs> you just got to look no at problem. it. No problem. I just figured I'd call the best uh, electrical engineers that I know and see if you might have run across it in your uh, stuff like that. Like I, I said, I've had it before with it. They stay on all the time, but that was just like an ABS wire rubbing up against it. Bring it in and let them fix it. What? Bring it in and let Leroy fix it. Well, if I came over there, yeah, definitely you guys can find it. That's for sure. But, yeah, I run Iowa to Montana, so it's a long ways off. And right now, I can't afford it. I'm sorry to say that, but I've spent $80,000 in the past two and a half months and not worked anything. So, yeah, time to say to, that I can't afford it is... Please. Time to do a little work. Um, yeah, exactly. I can do my own stuff. Yeah. Dad's really good. He's handy at stuff. So. And my next question is about oil pressure. This truck has substantially less oil pressure than what I'm used to. And even considering that the guy said that he had gotten a rebuild like only 130,000 miles ago. What is the acceptable range for oil pressure on these? What engine is it? 2000 DDAC4. The Detroit's... Let me look at my... I forget what the actual number was. Oh, you got to get the... It should be somewhere around... You got to get the stone tablets out. Yeah. Who are you kidding? You're rolling a magic eight ball. I just got done getting my very first fill-up with this truck, 9.2 miles to the gallon. Wow. On my very first fill-up on this thing, yeah. That's and impressive. All I've done was Pittsburgh Power um, Turbo, the manifold, I did the crankshaft damper, I got the OPS, and then I uh, just put it in my other, because I had two fleet air filters, so I put a fleet air filter, fleet air filter in here. Which that was another thing. The mechanics that this guy you've worked with weren't even smart enough to figure out how to put in a regular air filter. The inlet was turned the opposite direction. That, that's a challenging you know task. Mark down there. It, it stamped right on their inlet, pointing it was a big arrow this way, and it was facing the opposite way. <laughs> like, uh, wow. Yeah. They haven't been back to school for, yeah, their, I had a, for their advanced training yet. I had him do the gearbox because that was it had excessive play or whatever. And I said, well, while you're there and got the fluid drained, why don't you go ahead and change the power steering filter? I do believe that was the original factory 2000 power steering filter. It came out about halfway, and the rest of it was still in the reservoir. That's nice. I don't think the guy knew that a, a power steering you know filter even existed. Of course, I do because I had the same truck for two years. So. <laughs> Are you just running like regular fifteen forty oil through there, like shell? Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's, uh, um, what is your pressure at idle and going down the highway? At idle, you know what? To be honest with you, I have not looked at idle. It's the highway one that really bothers me. Like right now, now another problem I have is this truck is not geared properly for where I like to run. It's got three fifty fives. I had three seventies. It also has tall twenty four five, and I used to run twenty two low pro. So I'm running my sixty right now. I'm running sixty four, and I'm at thirteen hundred RPM, and the oil pressure is at thirty eight. That's low. Yeah, yeah that's my my two thousand one would be like forty eight. You know, all the time, even. Not at idle, yeah, but spec is anywhere between like 50 and 60, depending on which chapter. It should be definitely more than that. You know, at idle, you should probably be probably closer to like 30-ish, maybe even give or take a little bit there. But with 100,000 miles, that that seems really premature. Have you done any oil samples on this engine yet? I did the original oil sample when um, 
when I bought the truck, the guy had not changed the oil, which was good. So when I got home, I was able to do my uh, OPS sample. Let me pull it up. Is, is it under the same Jack? Yeah, it's under Jackie Wormley. Okay, let me pull up the sample. I can take a look at it here while we're we're doing this. While you're doing do that, you remember I'll anything? Thing, you guys were talking about this this morning too. You're talking about the uh, the new trucks that have the separate filter for the air compressor. I did that to my truck one year ago when Kevin was talking about it. I had an old uh, Chevy pickup truck that had a K&N air filter and it had a smog pump filter, which was small little tiny filter, and it was like perfect for the air filter on the truck. There you go. Uh, the reason they didn't want a separate air filter on the air compressor, they want the air compressor to have the benefit of the turbocharger forcing air into it when you're going down the highway. So they basically wanted the air compressor to be turbocharged. <laughs> well, don't laugh. If not on the, you're pulling a grade and you're using 20 pound of boost, the air compressor is going to shut off that much faster. Not on the new X-15, Bruce. They're naturally aspirated. They are, huh? If they stole our mm -hmm. idea. We might have been onto oh something. How about it? We were trying not to, to cannibalize any of the boost. We want it all in the cylinder. Right. Yeah, I, w I want my boost. I'm not having nobody take my boost. Not, and my air compressor but, works just fine. I need to have a turbocharger. A little bit the air compressor takes, you don't even see it in the boost cage. That we, I, yeah, we did figure that out. It really didn't change the boost reading at all. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't cost me nothing. Like I, I said, I had the little K-N filter. I'm looking at your oil sample right now, Jackie. I don't see anything other than a little bit of tin. Um, right. But you do have a little bit of lead, too. Uh, one part per million of copper. And it doesn't, it, nothing stands out, though. I mean, you just barely got flagged and then four parts per million. That's just a threshold to get flagged on that with 15,000 miles. And that's a guess on the mileage. I wasn't actually even sure. The guy just said he needed oil change. He changed it between 18 and 20. I just put 15 because, yeah. <laughs> so once I get, you know, time on this, because they told me to resample like a half interval, which I will anyway, because OPS makes it easy. It's a little tech cock there. But, uh, yeah, because it had fuel dilution. I want to see if that was just something that he... Had because he was a tanker, um, the dry bulk tanker. So he had to blow off, and you know I got the PTOs and stuff all still on here. That was another thing I was going to ask: Is there anything that those guys ever hook up power-wise that would make them want to have lights on their trailer all the time? Maybe that's something that he did. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I can't think of anything. Yeah, I don't know nothing about the tanker industry. I quizzed one guy at the fuel island, but he's never hauled nothing besides just a regular tanker. He's like, I don't know nothing about the bulk stuff. Well, like me neither. I just have a bunch of useless stuff underneath the truck right now, just hanging around, taking extra weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one thing I did want to talk on too. I mean, your your oil pressure is definitely low. You should be probably around sixty, sixty-five hot. Um, but there is a pressure release valve or regulator, pressure regulator, I should call it. Do you know if that's ever been changed? I do not know. Okay, I'd probably look into that first. Um, okay. I don't know. Say I'm, I'm, I would drop a pan, paint rod bearings, but you're, you kind of giving me the vibe that the truck was kind of maybe just patched together a little bit here. Vibe check. Yeah. So it probably wouldn't hurt to drop a pan and check your main and rod bearings, see if there's any excessive wear. I don't see anything in the sample that throws a red flag like, hey, you need to get this in right away. But there is a little bit of signs of something going on, but nothing to get flagged. Um, but the yeah. check valve would be the first thing I would do. 
and maybe even check it with a mechanical gauge too. We've had a couple trucks in here over the years that the guys come in for low oil pressure. We put a mechanical gauge on it, and the sending unit was just off. You know, I don't. Is that uh, one mechanical? According to well, I'll get to that in a sec. According to DTNA from Freightliner Detroit Literature, it says that the oil pressure should be greater than or equal to 35 psi at 1800. That's their spec. Oh, okay. If you rev the engine at 1800, it should be more than 35. But Kevin and I, we always talk about this, like minimum specs on <laughs> uh, on OEM right. stuff is basically a little bit above blown up. So yeah. according to them, yeah, 35 at 1800. If it's more than that, you're good. That's really low. Which is why I'm asking not you, really you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I could call each other. Oh, well, that's within spec. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. It's within spec, so that doesn't help at all. Uh, so when you were looking right. at that official number, that's their official number. But um, yeah, like you said, verify it with the mechanical gauge. If yours isn't, you'll know if yours is if it has a line going to it. But most likely, it's just going to be an electronic gauge. Yeah, and it's going oh, to be whatever. Oh, right. Mine is mechanical. You just said that. It just reminded me that no, mine is mechanical because I never, I'll never forget the time that uh, Freightliner put a scale gauge in my other truck, which was 2001 FLD. And um, when they did, they wrapped the line around the oil line for the um, oil gauge. And I was driving down the road, and all of a sudden I felt something drip on my sock because I drive barefoot. And I was like, what the hell just dripped on my sock? And I turned on the dome light, and my sock was black. And I'm like, what? Why am I getting oil on my sock? <laughs> and yeah, it was leaking right out the line. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else on this one? No, according to Detroit, you're fine. If you want to keep me, if you want to keep me for a moment, because I just noticed this is my uh, water temperature. I gave up on water temperature on my other, on my 2001, because that thing just wants to run like 160 degrees and I didn't want to go any higher. So this one I noticed. Like, okay, it's usually around 175, 180, but yesterday I'm driving down to the plant and it was down to 130. And then a little while later, it was back up to 170. But I don't know if it's like the gauge is bad or if, it's, if that is just a, a possible thermostat, you know, sticking and sticking open and then closing back up again. Yeah. Sounds like a thermostat. It's so intermittent, but um, when it's too cool, just go old school and put some cardboard up there. Yeah, yeah, that's what I did with my other one. I had just had cardboard up. I mean, in fact, I just removed it. I had the hood open the other day, and I was like, oh, I, I, I wasn't going to take this cardboard and throw it away. <laughs> yeah, recycle it. I, I hope Good it would. for the environment. Yes, yes. It was one a recycler. Third. It did. It yeah. was a recycler. All right. We are going to move along because the calls are starting to pile up on us. We are going to head north of the border this time. We're going to go to BC. Kyle, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Good. What's on your mind? Hello. Uh, I got a question for Leroy. I had an exhaust temperature, or exhaust trap inlet pressure sensor came up on the dash. I had a rough idle. Is that something to worry about? Uh, could be. Yeah. IXX. And you said it was DPF inlet temp? Yeah, exhaust trap inlet pressure. So if it is getting a good reading, let's just, Okay, well, scenario one, uh, you have a wiring or temp sensor issue that if you're sitting there idling, you should be around a couple hundred degrees, 200, 300 degrees, right? If it gets a bad reading, it'll say the DOC inlet temp is 200, then the DPF outlet or DPF inlet, which is your exhaust trap, same thing, exhaust trap, DPF. And if that's saying that's high, that could be just an erroneous sensor, bad wiring, something. Let's say it is getting a good reading. 
That means that you're sitting there idling and your DPF temp is really high, which either means one of two things. It's doing a regen um, or there's some sort of contaminant fuel or oil in your DPF that is continuing to burn even after it's not regening. Um, that's where the heat's coming from. So I guess to boil it down and to summarize, it's either a fake reading or a false reading. You just put it into a weird spot where it was doing a regen and didn't finish or there's something in, on fire in there. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, like while I was on hold there, this, it went out. So and this one has yeah, that was- computer screen on it, you know, or the, you don't have actual physical gauges. It's just a computer that somebody smashed. Oh, I love screen, So you have... It doesn't even work, so I don't have any of those gauges. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it probably sounds like you were just in a weird bit of a regen spot. I probably wouldn't worry about it until it keeps happening. Sometimes after treatment stuff does things once or twice, I tell people not to usually get carried away about it because then you'll go down a a road and you'll spend a lot of money doing troubleshooting on a problem you can't find, and the shop will say, well, if it's not doing it, I can't fix it, so how about we replace $30,000 worth of stuff? And then you won't have this issue. <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about it unless you eat that thing. All right. And one more quick question if you have a chance. Yeah. Uh, we have a 2016 uh, ISX as well. And that one has an intermittent throttle position sensor issue, I think. Because you be driving, you take off from a dead stop, and it'll just cut out. Like there's no throttle whatsoever. And then you... If you come into a pole, it'll do the same thing and it'll pop like there's an air-to-air leak in, under the hood. And then it'll come back. But it's intermittent. And like you don't get... Oh, do you get any sort of check engine light, ABS lights, anything like that? Nothing like that. Yeah. Um, the first thing I would do for my truck to verify, do you have some sort of scan gauge, OTR, laptop? Do you have anything like that? No. All right. Well, if, without just shotgunning parts at it, I mean, if you just want to shotgun parts at it, then, you know, it's got to be one of three things. The wiring to the ECM, the ECM itself, or the throttle set, pedal. Um, if you wanted to shotgun, you just do all three, and then you shouldn't have an issue. Um, the next thing you could sort of do to verify is to make sure it's not some sort of ABS issue or something like that acting up, taking away the throttle. For instance, if the ABS sees, like, no front um, front wheel speed, It'll take the pedal away because it thinks, you know, the, the front tires aren't moving. They're going zero miles per hour and the, the back tires are doing like 50, right? So it's doing a, a massive burnout. And ABS does not like burnouts. It's weird. Right. And um, so if I had some sort of scan gauge or OTR or something, I would just have accelerator pedal position pulled up real big while you're driving. Just keep an eye on it. And when it happens, if, you've, if you see it verify going to zero and then back to 80 or zero, back to 70 or whatever you have happening, then you know it's either the something to do with the, the throttle pedal sensor, the wiring, or the ECM. But if it doesn't, like the pedal is taken, being taken away, but the pedal sensor reading stays consistent, then you know it's probably ABS or something like that. Okay. If that made all sense. I don't know if that made sense or not. But. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we were thinking it's air-to-air, but air-to-air wouldn't really be intermittent, right? It would be constant. Yeah, I mean, if it went into smoke control mode, um, then you would see a consistent pedal reading. It, it's not necessarily like the pedal would be taken away, but it would just feel really laggy. Like the, 
the pedal would still be there. It just would feel like it has no power. But I mean, the air to air would have to have a pretty gigantic hole in it in order for it to um, do that. And the other thing is, like you said, it wouldn't be intermittent. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that gives us a route to go down anyway. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem. All right. Thanks for the call. We're going to head off to New Mexico this time. Bob, welcome to the program. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? I got two things for Jackie and then one thing for me. Jackie, uh, the FLD parts, there's one place in Idaho Falls called Holst, H-O-L-S-T, truck parts. They usually have a good selection of older stuff. And there's another place I pass in Wichita Falls, Texas. I don't know the name of it, but it is in Wichita, Wichita Falls, Texas, that has a huge yard full of older stuff. All right. Got it. Anything else? And oh, yeah, yeah for me, I got a 05 379 with a BXS cat. I was curious, does... Pittsburgh Power have any kind? I like to do a lot of my own work. Do they have any kind of tutorial videos where you can watch how to do your do the overhead? Um, we don't have any videos on a. I think we have some videos on an overhead, but not on specifically on a PXS. Now we we always follow just OEM manufacturer specs. When you deviate from there on the overhead, not great things can happen. I mean, it's it, they're they're meant to set for a certain space for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I mean, we don't see the BXS very often. So yeah, we wouldn't have a video on specifically on how to do it on a BXS, but I'm sure that yeah, exactly. you could you could either find it online or video, yeah. and then if you just video about doing overhead, it's going to be about the same. Yeah, because I know you're supposed to set the injector height, and then you set your actuators, and then the valves themselves. Yeah. I would try to find the specs and then see if you can find a video. Even like an MXS or NXS is going to be the the same procedure. Um, yep. It's just they might have different specs. So. Okay, so just have the specs and then watch how they do a different series. Right, yeah, it's going right. be about the same. Okay. That's all I got. Appreciate the info and listen to you guys quite a bit. All right, thanks for Thank the call. You. That's going to do it for today. Anything you guys want to close with? No, I don't think so. Sounds like we're good. All right. Uh, We will do it again next week. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power for doing the heavy lifting. We have got a new schedule this week, and we're still playing around with things, so this may or may not be a permanent schedule. We're moving some things around. We're adding some things and changing. So uh, I think the team is working on getting this written up. Uh, I gave them a preliminary schedule this morning, so we'll get something posted. But I'll kind of give you a quick rundown. Primarily Wednesday through Friday is changing some. Uh, Wednesday after the live show here, we will move over to Twitter Spaces at noon and do a uh, truck driver health Uh, over-the-road series on spaces. Remember, space is more of an open conversation, not just pure Q&A. We we can uh, get 10 speakers in and talk and cover things. Uh, That's Wednesday. That's the only real change there. We've added that. Thursday is getting completely reworked, uh, and Friday's different as well. So Thursday, let me see if I can remember this. I will start off Thursdays with an hour free-for-all. 
Then we will go to an hour of a new show, which is really kind of an update on what's happening in the Twitter trucking world. A lot going on there. We're trying to grow that over there. So Jamie Hagan will join me on Thursdays in the second hour to just do a Twitter update and what kind of trucking topics we're seeing on Twitter. Then Jamie and I will finish that hour and in, no, then we have Rolling Toe for the third hour. Then we go, Jamie and I go back to Twitter to continue that as a Twitter space. So Thursdays are really kind of changing right now. And we may even tweak that going forward. Uh, if I can move rolling toe around a little bit, that may be what I've got to figure out there. Um, Fridays, I will do an hour free for all on Fridays. That's actually a new free for all hour. We haven't had that one before. Then in the second hour, we are going to do trucking technology and efficiency in Twitter now. And that's because we can get a lot more speakers in. We can bring in a lot more of the guys who have really been focusing on fuel mileage with all the different platforms, um, new trucks, old trucks, whatever it might be, different engines. So uh, we're going to give that a shot this week and we'll see how it goes and we may continue to tweak from there. We're really trying to add some more shows and get some things worked out as we start to finish uh, our broadcast app, which I hope we have done soon. So that's what we're working on. Let me see if I had any announcements real quick for today. I don't think I did. Uh, it doesn't look like we have any announcements today. So we will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. We'll see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.